0: Power, it infinite power infinite it infinite power 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 infinite it infinite power infinite it infinite power it incident power 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 infinite power. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak, and this is Frank Chai. So tonight, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from the path that we've been on over the last couple of episodes, Um, because today is kind of a a sad day, it's a tough day for some people listening to this, because today is the third anniversary of the death of a friend of mine, and so today I want to talk about his life, his memory, what he meant to, to all of us, and then try to put his his death and our loss into some context and kind of continue talking about what we talked about on the last episode, which was how much do we really care about people versus how much are we really just concerned about how people are using their bodies. So before we get into that part, though, um, I need to talk about Scott, who Scott was and and what happened to Scott and, and what Scott represented to a lot of people. So I can only speak to my own experiences with him. I can't talk about what. Our mutual friends have gone through over the last three years or what their relationships were with Scott. So if that's you and um, anything that I say in the next uh, few minutes doesn't represent your experience with him completely, uh, I apologize for that. So I met Scott uh, when I was 16. Um, I met him online at a a time when it wasn't really like normal to have friends that you only knew online, but I was never a normal kid. I was never a normal guy. So that's just kind of who I was. Uh, I met Scott through—well, it's not important where I met him. It's not anything, like, sketchy or anything. It's just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter for the story. But over time, over different, like, chat rooms and stuff, I had lots of opportunities to get to know Scott. Um, and uh, I don't know when exactly it happened, but over time, like, Scott really became the older brother that I never had. Um, I'm the oldest of four kids. Uh, I never had that that big brother in my life, and, and that's that's really who Scott was. Scott was— Like, the one person that I knew who ever really seemed like he understood me. Like, I've always been somebody who has kept people at arm's length. I've never been somebody who's had, like, a lot of friends. I wasn't popular in school or anything like that. Um, And in my teens and my 20s, I was somebody who was really angry. I felt really alienated, really miserable. I was probably just an awful bastard to have to deal with and scott appreciated that and scott understood that and scott was like the one person like i said who like understood that he was (sighs) so it's tough to describe him right because he he had this really sort of well cultivated like facade of who he was like his public self um his private self was very different so publicly the face that he put on for people was that he was this um almost like demigod of of badassness right he was the toughest guy that anybody ever knew there was nobody tougher he was just the stories that he would tell you would i mean if anybody else told you these things it would it would seem like it was just a bunch of bull but it's it's scott it's part of this image that he has right so he he's the kind of guy who he broke a tooth and he he pulled out the broken tooth himself he would get cuts that an ordinary person would probably have to go to the emergency room to get stitches for and he would just put some super glue on his arm and go about his business. Uh, I remember hearing a story once about one of the last I think like normal jobs that he had. I think he was working in IT and he was working on a server in their server room and he, I don't know what he did obviously it wasn't something he was supposed to be doing but I imagine in his mind it was like of course I'm going to do this or let's just see what happens but he, he did something that got him that gave him an electric shock that knocked him across the room and he just like got up and I think just went about his job, right? Because that's who he was. Scott never met any kind of substance, drug or alcohol or anything that he wasn't going to try. At least I don't think. Legal or illegal, it it never really mattered. And that was part of, like, who he was, right? And so when you're a teenager or the the typical disaffected 20-something dude in America and we're inundated all the time with, like, you're supposed to drink a lot. You're supposed to be high a lot. Like that's the thing to do. That's that's who Scott was. Scott was like the embodiment of all of that. Both in terms of being able to take a lot of punishment and put his body through hell and then bounce back and, and beg for more. Uh, in terms of being like the almost like the slapstick comic relief while he was he, he was using and everybody's laughing at him about dumb stuff that he said or wrote or did. He was he was all of that. But like I said, like this is the public version of himself, right? He's very angry, very disaffected. Nobody can can tell him no. He was incredibly funny, easily the funniest person I've ever met. He was a brilliant writer. He had the best ability to, to curse somebody out that I've ever heard in my life. Nobody has ever and and can ever come close. Like i I found myself reading through like old emails and stuff where I know that he's He's mad about something just to have, like, a reminder or, like, a refresher of how he could string together these almost, like, 20-word-long, <laughs> like, pieces of art to try to express how mad he was about something. So that's who he was in his, his public life. Um, privately, I know that he was he was pretty sad. And that's something that tends to go with alienation and that, that anger and all that substance use is that there is a lot of sadness there that I don't think that he ever let people see. And so... Uh, that's just like a glimmer, like a glimpse in the background of who he was. As far as, as what happened to him and, and how his life ended, it was a long, sort of drawn out thing. And over the last three years I've gone through it, it's not like the seven stages of, of acceptance or whatever that, that thing is. Um, but I've gone through a lot of like who's who's to blame for what happened to him and thought a lot about, you know, how much am I responsible for this and how much of our of our brand group is responsible for this, and and why couldn't somebody, or why didn't somebody reach out, or why didn't I reach out more, or somebody reach out more? And there are people that I think, um, I don't know, I don't want to blame anybody, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, at this point, I don't see like anything that could come from that, especially not on a on a podcast. I think blaming anybody would be really petty and stupid and, and immature and, and legally a bad idea, and so we're just not going to get into like who is or isn't at fault for this and just kind of talk about what happened to him so he he hurt himself not intentionally not like self-harm or anything he and somebody else were had been out drinking and they were walking to their car and uh they tripped um in a parking garage and fell down a flight of concrete stairs in the parking garage and he hurt his leg really badly in the fall but it's, it's Scott, right? So he could, you know, he could be hacked to death by Jason Voorhees and sit there and be like, oh, what happened? Like, I'm fine. Everything's cool. So a, a little bit of a leg wound wasn't something that was going to cause him any sort of grief or anything. It was just like, oh, this is another thing that happened to me. Whatever. He was out of the country when it happened. So he wasn't exactly in a place, I think, where he could have gone to a doctor or, or maybe received the care that he probably should have. Um, but I honestly don't know like, the details behind that. I know that he got hurt really badly. He didn't do anything about it. And then when he got back home, he was in no rush to to do anything about it then either. So over time, this wound in his leg uh, gets infected, and the infection gets worse and worse. He ends up hospitalized, and it was really no big deal. Like, he was laying in his hospital bed playing his Nintendo DS, and, like, life goes on, right? No, no, No harm done. And maybe I was naive enough just to, like, go along with that. So anyway, he, um, as a result of this hospitalization, he ends up getting a prescription to Vicodin, which was the worst possible thing that could have happened that anybody could have done for him, was to give him access to that specific drug. He was literally like a kid in a candy store. And again, I, I don't want to um, cast any blame on, on anybody involved in this, but he was able to continue getting this prescription refilled over and over and over again. And I think it was because he wasn't taking... Um, his health his health very seriously. He uh, maintained that for a long period of time. We grew apart um, as I've grown apart from a lot of people in my life. Um, my career in academia is very demanding. I, I didn't have time maybe I should have made time more time for him but I was also I had moved I had my wife and I had bought a house we just had a kid and I just I just didn't have the time and the energy to, to go online and listen to him complain about um, the things that he was angry about. And that's the thing, like, I have to really emphasize that Scott was somebody who was very angry more often than not, especially the last few years of his life. I think he became very angry, he was very cynical, and I just didn't have time. Like, I, that's on me. Um. So anyway, three years ago this past October, I got a text message from him, um, saying um, something to the effect of, Hey man, I need you to call my mom. I'm in the ICU. And so uh, my reaction was basically, um, How about you tell me why you're in the ICU instead of making me track down your poor mother? <laughs> like, let's that's just, that's just, how about you tell me what's going on? And so basically the infection had gotten worse. <laughs> he had gained a lot of, I believe it was 42 pounds of water weight over 15 days, um, an astronomical amount of weight weight gain over a very rapid period of time that nobody could understand and his blood pressure just kind of fell through the floor. Again, this is my understanding of it, my memory of it. I, I could be wrong, I completely admit that I could have maybe some of the timeline twisted around or some of my facts incorrect. So I apologize for that if that's the case. So he's, he's in the hospital, I go out and see him again, and he wasn't really awake. They had given him morphine for the pain. He had been given, uh, I remember, he had been given an antibiotic that made him turn blue, like the girl from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and then he had to go through a chemical skin peel for that, which he he thought was part of this conspiracy from the hospital to basically torture him. They were going to give him a haircut. His brother and I volunteered to do it for him, which he found out about later, and I, I think he thought it was funny, but at the same time was like probably kind of mad about our... our plans to cut his hair and give him frosted tips. So I remember being really scared. I remember, like, sitting in his hospital room where the family got there and, like, just watching him sleep and thinking, like, okay, like, he's gonna pull through this because he's invincible. Right? He's He's been the toughest guy I've known my entire life. He's gonna pull through this and we're gonna, like, take this as maybe this will be his moment of, of clarity. Right? And we're gonna work together and I'm gonna be a better friend and I'm gonna help him you know get get back to where he needs to be and hopefully this all the bike in it is done now I hope and I talked to him a couple of days later um, he called me to thank me for coming and and apologized for not really being all together when he saw me and again it was like nothing had really happened but when I spoke to him that day I had a lot of other stuff going on um, a lot of demands at work and I, I couldn't really like take the time there but I, I know I was really disappointed Over the next several months we had a lot of other conversations like that he, uh, I remember him calling me. He called me one night because he had been put back into the ICU. He uh, didn't know why, and so he wanted me to talk to his nurse and have the nurse explain to me why he was in there. Um, and so I talked to this poor guy at like one o'clock in the morning, and the guy said something like his blood pressure fell again, and we just wanted to like put him in some place where we could keep an eye on him. And so he put me back on the phone with Scott, and I said something like, you know, you idiot. They didn't put you in there because you stepped on a bucket and your foot's caught in the bucket. Like your blood pressure is falling. They just want to watch. You. And he's like, "Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense." So we had made plans. You know, he thought he'd be out by Thanksgiving. Um, that didn't happen. He thought he'd be out by Christmas. I said that I could come by, I'd come by the house, um, bring my my family by the house over over Christmas and see him. Um, and He wasn't out by Christmas, and then I heard from him. Sometime in January, I think, and he was about to be put into, he said he was about to be transferred to physical therapy and start getting everything back together. And then I would hear from him intermittently, and then I got a message saying that he had died and that his body had given up. Um, And it was like a bomb went off in my life. So, like, we, there's this thing about not wanting to end up like a... Like, you don't want to be a statistic, right? But in reality, everybody ends up a statistic (laughs) overall. Like, there's there's no way to avoid it. Like, we're all statistics. And unfortunately, Scott is a statistic of the opioid epidemic. Um, And I think that a lot of the talk about the epidemic is really interesting because there's never a lot of context given for it. It confuses... People who get medication legitimately for legitimate reasons, like Scott did, with people who are buying heroin off the street, which is uh, a whole other issue. And the, the word "epidemic" is thrown around a lot. And so, as I was preparing to talk about this tonight and and kind of frame it in this idea of you know we only care about what people do with their bodies and not necessarily about the people themselves, um, I wanted to get an idea about like what where Scott fits into this story in 2017 it's estimated that there were a little bit over 47,000 deaths from all forms of opioids. So that would include synthetic stuff, that would include heroin, fentanyl, everything. Everything that falls under that, that big umbrella of opioids. And we call it an epidemic because in 1999, there were only just over 8,000 deaths. So in the last, what is that, 20 years, there's been a almost a 600% increase the number of people who've died. And so understandably, people are really upset about this, and there are a lot of people in my field and other academic disciplines and universities and government and all levels of government who are trying to come up with some sort of solution to this and who are at odds about, you know, do we lock people up for longer? Do we try to focus on harm prevention and harm reduction? So it's become a big philosophical and political issue um, all over this this increase and this 47,000 600 people who died in 2017, but I want to give it some context right because so I'll put it like this So in Pennsylvania where I live one of the things that's been talked about um, a lot is Creating more creating safe injection sites not more safe injection sites like any safe injection sites Where people would be able to use heroin in a place where they know that um, It hasn't been tampered with that they can they can get testing strips to make sure that there's no fentanyl in what they're about to take. They have clean needles, they have access to methadone. There are people there doing needle exchanges, giving out condoms, doing everything that they can to make sure that they're using an as safe of an atmosphere as possible. And what research there is on safe injection sites shows that it it does reduce heroin use overall. So the pushback for it is it's like understandable, right? Because we've always talked about substance use in these really sort of moralistic terms. And I don't remember if it was about the safe injection sites or because Pennsylvania is also considering legalizing recreational marijuana, but I remember seeing something from a a prosecutor within the last week or two where they were pushing back against one of these ideas because they said that if if we did make that thing legal, if we did make that a, a practice, then the message that the state was sending people was that it was okay to not live drug-free. It's okay to not live drug-free, which is probably one of the stupidest things that I've heard in my entire life. (laughs) Uh, We live in a country that is so um, overwhelmed with substances and substance use that we're putting all kinds of chemicals into ourselves constantly. We're breathing all kinds of chemicals all the time against our will that whoever this prosecutor was who said that the government is now endorsing addiction or endorsing substance use is is just so like mind-blowingly stupid right it's just it's baffling and I say that because there there are bigger epidemics happening in the United States right now than heroin than um, opioids way bigger the the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism said like estimates that 88,000 people die every year from alcohol use disorder, which is almost twice as many. As opioids in a given year, they estimate that 15 million people over the age of 18 have an alcohol use disorder, and that an additional 623 thousand adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17 also have alcohol use disorder. So, about 15.7 million people in the United States have a problem with alcohol, and we don't care. <laughs> we don't we don't care at all about about them. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that we really romanticize alcohol use in the United States that we have a bigger problem with people who are sober, that we have a bigger problem with people who choose not to use. And so to sit here and tell me that legalizing recreational marijuana or creating safe injection sites for people who want to use heroin somehow endorses the evils of, of substances and, and is a slap in the face of sobriety, that's so absurd. We're losing billions, hundreds of billions of dollars every year from alcohol use related Debts and health insurance problems, or insurance claims, I should say, and and just across the board, right? It's such an expensive epidemic that that money could be could be used to fulfill or to, to solve so many problems with infrastructure and schools and healthcare and and everything else. But um, it's just not, right? Um, and I don't know. Uh, I didn't check in my research for this um, podcast tonight how much money the government does make off of. Um, syntaxes and things like that. So, that is something to consider. But the important numbers here 88,000 people a year dying and 15 million, almost 16 million people uh, struggling with alcoholism in the United States is a staggeringly high number compared to 47,000 people dying from heroin. And then I got thinking beyond like alcohol and I wanted to learn a little bit more about obesity in the United States because, again, We're concerned about what people are putting into their bodies and we're we're sitting here clutching our pearls and wringing our hands over what heroin is doing to people. When in the United States the CDC estimates that over ninety-three million people are obese, that annually over six hundred and thirty-five thousand people die from heart disease, almost six hundred thousand people die from cancer, over eighty thousand people die from diabetes. Now not all of those instances of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes are, of course, related to obesity, especially not on the cancer side of things. But we know that if we reduce obesity, then we reduce the number of people dying from one of those diseases. And then I started asking myself, I wonder how much money is being made by companies out there that are like contributing directly to the obesity crisis in America. You know, annually, McDonald's makes $36 billion. Fast food places that kind of purport to be healthy. Um, Subway, 11 billion. Jimmy John's, 2.1 billion. The two biggest fried chicken companies in in America, KFC and Popeyes. KFC makes 4.4 billion. Popeyes, 3.1 billion. So there's money out there in us getting fat, and there's money out there in us getting drunk. And again, we can't have safe injection sites for people who want to use heroin in a safe way, but we can have bars and we can have a starbucks on every corner and we can we can say things right like don't talk to me until i've had my coffee um which is really just saying like i i can't be dealt with when i'm sober i can't handle the world when i'm sober i need this this massive caffeine fix and by the way starbucks is 14 billion dollars a year duncan is 8.2 billion we've normalized this stuff right we've normalized you are tired, you take caffeine. You are sad, you drink. You're happy, you drink. You're sad, you eat a lot of junk food. You're happy, you eat a lot of junk food. You should work out, but we're gonna come up with reasons to complain about it. We should eat healthy and it's expensive to eat healthy and that's that's totally understandable, but we we also don't do ourselves any favors and we allow ourselves to call it things like rabbit food or we're gonna um, talk about how disgusting Vegetarian options are, vegan options are. It's just gross. It's unnatural, right? The amount of sugar that we eat in a year. One study I found from the University of California at San Francisco, one of their research institutes, estimated 57 pounds of added sugar per year. Other places estimate as much as 150 pounds of sugar per year that we're consuming. So, again, like we're putting all kinds of stuff into ourselves that our bodies don't want and don't need, but then we're really concerned about heroin. And that's really interesting. We're, we're losing sleep. We're running campaigns. We're, we're passing policy. We're locking people up. We're ruining people's lives uh, over what, in the grand scheme of things, it's a much smaller epidemic than these bigger problems of obesity and alcoholism. But across the board, we're just concerned about those bodies, right? We're concerned about those dead. We want to be able to say this many people died from this thing, and we don't think about those of us who have been suffering for the last three years since the loss of Scott, right? We're not included in those statistics. We're not there. We're not part of that story. We're not. We're not like convenient parts of the narrative. And so, like I say that because philosophically, this is something that's really difficult for for me, and I I imagine probably more people than just me, because there are many people out there who are much more intelligent than I am, who. Think about the world in terms of um, this idea of bodily autonomy that says that we can, it's our body, we have the right to do anything we want to to our body. If we want to put anything into our body, any, any substance into our body that we want to, um, we have that right to. But then at the same time, you know, while it was his right, I guess, to do what he did, I still really miss my friend. And a lot of us still really miss our friend. And so, yeah, so like, where does he fit into this story? Um, Where do any of us fit into the story? It goes back to what I was talking about last week, I guess. And I said that we needed to think about how we take care of ourselves a lot more. uh, And we need to do a lot more um, to look out for each other and we need to do better by each other. And, you know, since it happened, um, I've kind of made a tradition um, in my classes at the university I work at. Of at least one time a, a semester, either in October, when like the anniversary of all of this stuff happening in the beginning, um, or in March around the anniversary of his death, of, of telling at least one of my classes Scott's story. Um, and I think that it's it's worthwhile in an educational setting for a lot of reasons because, like, you know, there are a lot of professors who act like they have lived their whole life on on a cloud, right? That, Nothing bad has ever happened to them. They are perfectly perfect in every way. They are Mary Poppins. And I'm very much not that. And I want my students to know that, especially because we live in a place that has been really uh, ravaged by heroin and ravaged by opioids. I want to go in and tell my students the story so that they they know that I had a terrible day one day when my friend died and that I've been resilient (laughs) over the last three years, as have all of us, and and we're okay, and we're still here, and everything's okay. And so I hope that, that you, those of you listening to this who have never heard this story before, I hope that you, you take something similar from that too, right? With me, the fallout from his death meant taking a hard look at my own life, looking at my, then my only daughter, um, but now my children, both of my girls, and thinking, You know, I I wouldn't want to cause them this pain. So I need to start taking better care of myself. And since telling it in in classes, I've had not a lot, but a few um, students become more comfortable talking about their own issues with their own sobriety um, and their own health and and taking that stuff more seriously. And so that's good, right? Like the cliche is if you get through to one student or one person and that makes a difference, then your job is successful. And so I guess if that's how we're measuring um, how successful my job has been, then I win. So I hope that those of you listening to this have that similar experience too. That you think about the problems you've been going through, you think about the challenges that you've, you've had, the people that we've lost, because we've all lost people. And I want you to be proud of yourself for still being here, however long it's been. If it's something that happened yesterday, three years ago, 30 years ago, you're still here, you're still fighting every day, you're still crushing it every day. And that's something you should really, be really proud of. So, as far as my friends who already know this story, um, you know, that's it. Like, I think this is goodbye for Scott. I think this is the only time that I want to talk about him on this show. And I think this is the only time that I want to talk about him publicly ever again. I think it's time to say goodbye. Um, I'm going to keep telling the story in my classes for the reasons that I have said. But it's been three years. I've seen... How devastated people have been, you know. We all have, and I don't know. I wonder. I wonder sometimes what Scott would think about all of this. I wonder what, what Scott would think about like this this devastation <laughs> that was left behind when he left. Like when I tell the story in my classes, I think about like I will tell them. You know, on one hand, I I tell this story to you because I know that Scott would really like the attention, and if anybody here starts crying then wherever he is, he really appreciates that. But then at the same time, um, he's probably really pissed about uh, all of his drama being aired um, for for all the world to hear. So what's he going to (laughs) do? Right? Um, So, like I said, he was the best. He was really the best. Um, I miss him every day. So, later, Scott. So on happier stuff. Let's talk about something happy, okay? Let's let's move on and let's talk about some nerdy stuff because that's important too. Um, one of the things that I've learned over the last three years is that um, I have no room in my life for cynicism. I have I used to be somebody who's really cynical, um, really almost nihilistic, really misanthropic, because I was that really alienated, like super mad at the world kind of guy. Um, and I don't want to be that person anymore and, and one of the things that I'm trying to do better at um, and that I want to do on this show is like really embrace not just being happy about stuff but positive about stuff and just having like unabashed um, appreciation for the things that I like right? Um, and that we all like and I think there's a lot of value in, in just like, really dorking out about something so I'm so excited about how Play for Progress is going I'm so excited uh, it's such an amazing project. I can't believe that I've been doing this for so long, this job for so long, and now I get to say that Dungeons & Dragons is part of my work. Like, I never, never in a billion years would I ever imagined that. If I could flash back, like, like, 10 years ago or whenever, whenever I started, like, thinking about going for a doctorate, and back then I was, like, I was trying to be, like, John Badass. I was, like, I was starting crying through it. I have to be really intense all the time, and there are people in this field who are like that. It's kind of sad a little bit, um, to be honest. And now I get to play D anD D with people and talk about how this is empowering for them and how this is improving their self-efficacy and their social capital and like helping them trust people um, and trust each other and understand like bureaucracy and understand justice and understand politics and education and like everything that I care about wrapped up into this into this game. The, the volunteers that I have at my university who have been helping put this project together as we get ready to, to launch the next school year at the first school that we're in have been amazing. They've come up with some brilliant ideas for characters and story hooks and like everything that goes into gaming and like that storytelling part of it. it it's just amazing. I wish that I could spoil stuff. I, I so wish I could... Just be like, they came with this idea, and this idea, and this character, and, um, and all of it's so rad. And I gotta wait. I have to wait. I have to make myself wait until later on, once we get going. But we are going to, I think, I think we're going to make our first con appearance. So uh, in a few, in the middle of April, so what, like five or six weeks from now, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, is MipaCon. And I think we're going to be there. I, I think I, um, you know, I've taken students to academic conferences before. I've taken students to a bunch of conferences before. Um, but it's all academic and the academics who might be listening to this know that, uh, academic conferences are terrible. (laughs) They're so boring. There are so many bad presentations. It's just overwhelming. It can so quickly turn into a mutual admiration society. And a lot of people just go in, give their talk, sneak out and go sightseeing or in my case, because very introverted, give my talk, and then hide out in my hotel room and just watch TV until I have to go do something else again. And I, I can't wait like to see where this, this work takes us. I can't wait to see how many places I get to take students and how many venues I get to go to to talk about mental health and victimization and substance use and violence and how d d can help people dealing with all of those things. I can't wait it's it's the coolest thing that i've ever experienced so far in my career and we haven't even actually gotten off the ground yet i'm i'm so excited because i've seen even with the volunteers that we've had step up for this i've seen improvement in them like i've seen them change i've seen you noticeably change your personalities are a little bit different you are a little bit happier because of this like yesterday was our last day of classes before spring break on a Friday, and playing on a Friday is tough, and Friday before spring break is tough, but the students who were able to come, because also looking at a, another snowstorm, um, so a lot of our volunteers had to bail early to try to beat the snow, but the people who were able to come, we were in that classroom for almost three and a half hours playing D&D, and just watching them get an, an understanding for the dice and an understanding for the rules and the possibilities there it's just been fascinating so i'm so excited i'm so excited and i'm so excited to share all of this with you as we move forward so um that's it for this week um i hope this is worth your time talk to you soon later bye infinite infinite power infinite infinite power infinite power power power, power. Inc- incident. Incident, power, power, incident, 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 power, power, power.